Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, the Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In this series of podcasts, it's our mission to pull out the overlooked goodies from the back of the sock drawer that is UK trade policy. And in this latest episode, we're turning the spotlight right back onto the United Kingdom and its four component nations. Since the Brexit referendum, the trade policy focus has been primarily about how UK businesses will trade with their counterparts in the EU and around the world. But what about intra-UK trade? Surely it stands to reason that there won't be any problem for a business in, say, England to trade with a business in Scotland. But closer examination shows that when you strip away the legal framework provided by EU membership and simultaneously devolve regulatory powers to the administrations of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, some rather unexpected problems can result. The UK's Internal Market Bill, currently making its way through Parliament, forms part of the government's response to these challenges. But is it a sledgehammer to crack a nut? And are the right nuts being lined up for clobbering in the first place? To discuss these questions and many others, I'm delighted to have with us today a truly impressive array of experts on these technical and constitutional issues. I'm joined by Dr. Emily Lidgate, Senior Lecturer in Environmental Law at the University of Sussex and Deputy Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. I'm also joined by George Peretz, QC, an eminent barrister working at Moncton Chambers and an expert on trade and Brexit. And also with me is Professor Graham Roy, Head of Economics at the University of Strathclyde and formerly a senior economic advisor to the Scottish Government. Thank you all for joining us today. Emily, if I can start with you, let's let's go back to first principles. What is the UK Internal Market Bill? What's its purpose? Sure. Well, Chris, it's exactly as you said. So Brexit created a problem for the UK, which was that some of the sort of the politics and the logistics of devolution were actually handled through every nation in the UK adhering to EU rules. And there's rightly been a lot of of attention to that in the context of Northern Ireland because of the history of conflict there. But this is just as true for Scotland, England and Wales. That is to say, EU rules created a superstructure to ensure that there are no, say, border checks in, in Gretna Green or along the River Dee to ensure that businesses in, say, Scotland don't have to comply with different requirements to work in or export to different devolved nations. So the Internal Market Bill is the UK government's way of ensuring that there will be frictionless trade within the UK. So it essentially sets out some arrangements to replace EU rules. So on the face of it, that all sounds quite straightforward and sensible. Graham Roy, what's the current status of the bill at the point of recording this podcast? Where has it reached in the sort of legislative process? It's not yet come into law, has it? No, so it's still going through the full process of being reviewed by Parliament, scrutinised by Parliament. Obviously, the additional dimensions of the roles of devolved administrations in their contributions to the scrutiny of the bill as well. So it's it's a complex process going through. It's currently in the House of Lords and being scrutinised there, and then it will come back into the wider Commons process for the final 
at least, well, at least we think the final parts of the scrutiny in there. I think the one big thing is that we don't know yet is where this is going to end up. So it's quite far through in terms of the normal timeline for a bill, but I think there's a lot more to happen between now and it ultimately passing into law before we get to some form of conclusion. George Peretz, in what specific ways do you think that intra-UK trade might be jeopardised in the absence of an overarching internal market bill? I mean, what are the problems that this is setting out to resolve? At the moment, the debate, it's slightly at an abstract level. But I think what one can say is if you look at federations, quasi-federations, federal systems throughout the world, there is always an issue which is solved by different techniques as to a balance between giving powers to subnational units, states, provinces, in the EU, individual member states, and on the one hand, and then all of these at sort of the macro level, all of these bodies, the European Union, Australia, Canada, the United States, also have want to set up a framework which enables essentially free trade to take place within that jurisdiction. And so you've got a trade-off between the freedom of individual units to do their own thing and wanting to preserve free trade. But there's clearly, once you allow sort of subnational units or subcentral state units, like in our case, Scotland, the Scots Parliament or the, the Welsh Senate, to start legislating in ways that affect the sort types of things that can be sold or the way in which they can be sold, there is at least a potential for them to do that in ways that make it more difficult for suppliers from the other parts of the United Kingdom to supply their goods in that country. They have to comply with rules they don't have to comply with, as it were, at home, or the rules may be specifically designed to make it difficult for them to sell in the region concerned. And, you know, in all these examples that one sees around the world, it's recognised there's always a temptation for a country when it sets its rules as to what goods it permits to be sold or the way in which they're to be sold, to do so in a way that either unintentionally or deliberately has the effect of favouring home producers. So until now, all legislation that's been passed in the devolved parliaments around the UK has had to comply with EU rules. So now that we've left the EU, what's actually so hard about just substituting an EU framework with a UK framework? What are the things which are making this problematic, Emily? Well, actually, one of the things we were really surprised by when we started looking closely at the sort of post-Brexit legislation in the area of food standards is that it basically devolved everything. So vis-a-vis EU rules, where you had to have things like the same maximum residue levels for pesticides, so you don't need a border check or different requirements, that everything was just devolved. And, you know, we wrote about the time saying, wow, this introduces a ton of new potential border barriers to the UK internal market. And I'm not sure why why this wasn't sort of dealt with at this stage. Maybe one of the other panelists would have a better idea. I mean, my guess is that it was just so much legislation. They wanted to get everything ready for the UK rule books. At that stage, we were looking at sort of crashing out in March. I can't even remember what year it was, 2018. So it was just a really a politically expedient way of dealing with this, of just devolving everything. But then alongside that, there was a more sort of sensitive and delicate political process going on through a sort of joint ministerial committee, which is the body that governs devolved nations relationships about replacing some of these EU rules with common frameworks.
Now, at the same time, there's been a discussion that's been ongoing for quite some time about common frameworks. Those discussions are still ongoing. Why do we need an internal market bill on top of that? The common framework system is essentially an intergovernmental set of negotiations at the moment on no statutory basis at all. But the the idea is that they get together and they agree what a common set of regulatory rules for a particular sector should look like. And then they will go off to their own home nations and implement that accordingly. That's a very different mechanism from the Internal Market Bill, which is essentially a law-based system which will work ultimately by giving private bodies rights before courts, employing lawyers like me to go and argue for them. And that's a very sort of different mechanism, and they will clash. And one one example of how you can see how they will clash is this. You can imagine that a common framework might permit a certain amount of divergence in what's done. It might be agreed that Scotland can do this and England can do that. There may be a sort of margin of appreciation. But the Internal Markets Bill gives no room at all for that. Even if it all been agreed as a common framework, if I'm representing a client who says, well, I, I could sell my goods in England, but here's a Scottish rule. It may have been approved by the common framework or not, it doesn't matter. But here's a Scottish rule that stops my goods being sold in Edinburgh. It's incompatible um, with the mutual recognition principle. I'm going to go to the court of session and I'm going to get an order, uh, a declarator, saying that this Scottish rule simply doesn't apply to my goods. And that's, that's something that, as a private client, you'd be entitled to as of right under the Internal Market Bill. I mean, that, there are mechanisms that the bill has for dealing with that, but none of them refer in terms to common frameworks, and they are all entirely in the hands of the UK government, which for these purposes is the English government. So it's a very asymmetric model. If any of these problems ever affect England, the UK government has various ways of dealing with it by using its powers under the what will then be an act, or, of course, just passing further legislation in Westminster, but those powers aren't available to the Scottish government. Emily, I'm wondering to what extent this all ultimately boils down to chicken, or to be slightly more specific, the question of chlorinated chicken imports from the US. Because, of course, trade policy is a reserved power for the UK government. That's not disputed. And there is a concern that if the UK government were to do a trade deal with, for example, the United States, allowing in products which perhaps were not permitted to be sold under Scottish or Welsh legislation, but were imported into England, then there would be no way of actually stopping that being sold in the devolved administrations, despite their domestic regulations on the subject. Do you see the chicken issue as being the kind of the elephant in the room, if I can mix my animal metaphors rather grotesquely there? And Brexit all roads lead back to chlorinated chicken, apparently. No, I mean, I think there's other issues like state aid, which George would be more qualified to address, but and Northern Ireland, of course. But I definitely think that there is a role for chlorinated chicken to be addressed as a serious concern with the internal market bill. And that's because it has these market access principles of mutual recognition and and non-discrimination. Mutual recognition principle basically says that anything that meets the legal requirements to be sold in one devolved nation can then be sold in other devolved nations. And that also applies to food imported into the UK. So so theoretically, you know, if, and as you say, trade agreements, uh, trade negotiations are reserved to the central UK government, say the UK government negotiated a a trade agreement, which then led to us importing chlorinated chicken or producing it, say, in England, then there wouldn't be a sort of a legal basis for, for devolved nations to block it. And I think 
also even to, you know, to label it, because of course, then the question arises of whether, you know, devolved nations could, could simply introduce a food label so that at least consumers knew, you know, this, that they're eating chlorinated chicken. There's a common framework for labeling under which presumably nations, you know, as a whole could decide that certain products that were previously prohibited, like chlorinated chicken, need labels. But the Internal Markets Bill's mutual recognition principle also covers labels, which essentially in the white paper on the Internal Market Bill also really highlights this, that if one nation has more more stringent labeling requirements than another, then that's that's a market access barrier. So there's a presumption that nations need to accept each other's labeling requirements or or lack thereof. They can't impose additional labeling requirements. So what this really gets down to, again, is, you know, what is the oversight of the devolved nations over trade negotiations? Would they be able to sort of block obligations in areas that are part of their devolved competence? And again, this this is something that's not formalized. Their role isn't formalized. And I think there's supposed to be more guidance coming out on that in a sort of concordat on on international trade, which sets out there, they have an advisory role, but it's it's not it's they certainly don't have anything approaching sort of veto power over certain trade obligations. Graham, the UK government has called the Internal Market Bill the biggest transfer of powers in the history of devolution. The Scottish Parliament has described it as a power grab. Now they can't both be right, can they? I think. In politics, everyone can be right and everyone can be wrong. And I think this is one of those examples. There's a few things in all of this. So it is true that as a result of Brexit, the legislative powers of the Scottish Parliament will expand. So they'll have new direct responsibilities in areas which in the past were in control by Europe. And they'll now be powers that the Scottish Parliament can have responsibility for. Where I think the kind of issues around a power grab become interesting is... Obviously, well, one area, one direct area very early on is about the aspect in the internal market bill for the UK government to spend money under the auspices of promoting the internal market in areas which are quite clearly devolved. And so that is one aspect which the Scottish government has raised as being essentially powers that are being not taken away from it, but actually undermining the process of devolution where there's at least been for the last 20 years a clear distinction between what powers are devolved and what powers are reserved and who's responsible for those areas. Where the subtlety comes in, I think, more broadly about the power grab is about the way that the internal market bill will operate in the terms of ultimately who has got the authority to implement a series of legislation or powers within the area. So if you take, for example, the Scottish Parliament impose legislation around, say, measures around, say, tackle obesity in terms of sugar content or labelling around content of sugar within products or single-use plastics or deposit return scheme um, labelling around that, the Internal Market Bill doesn't prevent them making that legislation But what could happen is that if this legislation isn't replicated across the rest of the UK, then there's nothing that the Scottish Parliament could do to prevent a private provider providing these products into Scotland that don't meet these criteria because the Internal Market Bill ensures through mutual recognition and non-discrimination that your products could be sold within Scotland. So the legislation would apply within Scotland and it would apply to, say, products or activities that are taking place within Scotland. But if somebody is importing these products from the rest of the UK, 
then the legislation essentially wouldn't apply. So it limits the power of the Scottish Parliament and the devolved administrations to to set um, legislative policies that then have a due effect within their locality. Just to add on to that, just wondering if if the other panellists agree also that the situation is even more stark than that because of the asymmetry in in the sort of size and market power between the devolved nations. So basically, whatever regulations England decides to do domestically, assuming that common frameworks in whatever area fall apart or or are non-functional, will have a disproportionate impact on all the other devolved nations because England's simply exporting more. It's making more stuff and it's exporting more stuff. So, you know, there's a danger of devolved nations also being sort of competitively undercut if they want to have more stringent, more expensive regulation, then then their their goods are going to have to compete against the cheapest available options. So that's, I think, illustrates why it's sort of even perversely, um, you know, undercutting devolved powers. But um, Graham, I'd love to talk to you sometime and put together like a legal and an economic analysis looking at the actual trade flows, because I have only a vague and abstract sense of of what my my vague and abstract sense is that this is a highly integrated market and there's tons of stuff, you know, flowing between borders, but I don't have any numbers to put behind that. So that would be a really interesting thing to look at. Exactly. I mean, this is one of the things which is, again, makes it really tricky is just how integrated the economies of the UK are. I mean, we, we talk about exporting between Scotland and the rest of the UK or exporting between Wales and, and England, etc. But these are essentially, you know, one domestic market. So businesses don't think about segmented markets between Scotland and England. And you only have to think about the products that are consumed that we consume day-to-day basis about which ones are likely to be made in Scotland, which ones are likely to be imported, if we can use that, from the rest of the UK. So we make iron brew in Scotland. That's our big soft drink. Everything else will be imported from the rest of the UK. So on a scheme like this, that integration of the market just means that the asymmetry becomes an issue because the dominant market there is the one, in this case, the way legislation is set out, will become the one that essentially dictates policy for the devolved administrations. Yeah, I'd note that the whole section of the bill is devoted to explaining, to setting out a whole system of rules of origin, something which UK TPO were deeply, deeply familiar, but we're going to have our own domestic rules of origin regime. You have to have that because the concept of what is actually produced in Scotland is when one thinks about it, may not be entirely straightforward. Is jam produced in Scotland of all the fruit comes from Berwick-upon-Tweed? This is going to keep all of us in business for years. It's going to keep quite quite busy. But yeah, I mean, in terms of the asymmetry, I mean, there there are two forms of asymmetry here, both in very much in favour of England. One, as you say, is that England is 85% of the population. And as someone was explaining earlier, the, the mechanism of the IAM bill isn't to stop the legislation in a devolved part of the United Kingdom working at all. It just stops it applying to goods that are produced elsewhere in the UK. Now, you could see a, an English government, a UK government, say, with a purport, let's assume, had a stricter set of regulation than Scotland. It might say to itself, well, we accept that the bill will mean that these rules won't apply to Scottish imports, but we don't care very much about that because there aren't that many of them, and it will work perfectly well just applying to English-produced goods. And it's very hard to see that the other way around, simply because... In Scotland, English imports are likely to be 
much higher proportion of what's actually sold simply because of the scale of the countries. The other asymmetry, which I was mentioning earlier, is the legal one, which is that the English government, because it's the UK government, which controls effectively you know, the sovereign legislature of the United Kingdom, got an 80-seat majority in the House of Commons, if any aspect of the IAM bill ever becomes inconvenient to the UK government as the English government, it just legislates to deal with it. Whereas the Scottish government, the Welsh government, the Northern Irish government don't have that access to the to a sovereign legislature. I just wanted to also raise the, this other piece of the puzzle, which is the Scottish Continuity Bill, in which Scotland has basically set out its intent to continue to align with EU regulation in areas. I don't. I, I haven't checked lately. I'm not sure if they've specified which areas they intend to maintain alignment with EU regulation, but that immediately seems to me to, to be a strong force that, that could sort of prize apart harmonization, given that, you know, aren't we leaving aren't we leaving the EU so we can take back control of, of our regulation in the UK? And then Scotland is saying that they're not going to do that. Graham, do you have a sense of, of what's going on with that bill? So I think this gets into the wider question around the, the politics of this and where the, the differentiation between the governing parties in Westminster and Holyrood, whereby you have administration in Scotland, which is sees that continuity with the European Union as being a top priority. It's where they want to be. And then potentially, but then you've got a, a Westminster administration that taking back control means you want to, by definition, want to vary from what you know, vary regulations from the European Union. So you essentially have the perfect storm of where these issues will happen and they will emerge. So aside from wanting to keep regulations with the EU, you will have practical examples that George commented already about where you will have legislation in the future changing in devolved areas because you're wanting to to set policy differently but then policy changing at a UK level because they're wanting to move away from existing EU regulations and to to set policy for the UK as a whole in a post-Brexit world. So you can just see the next few years being littered with examples of where there's spillovers from Westminster into devolved policy areas but then devolved policy areas is rubbing up against the internal market bill and consistency across the UK. And yeah, this is going to be the, well, unless the internal market bill changes, this is going to be essentially the story of internal market discussions across the UK for the foreseeable future. We're running short of time. We haven't really had any chance to discuss the small issue of Northern Ireland and the fact that the Internal Market Bill explicitly breaks the terms of the EU-UK withdrawal agreement. But perhaps we can just sort of touch on that as, as we sort of bring the discussions to a close. But I'm just wondering what you think, uh, each of you, the, the longer term impact of the Internal Market Bill will be on the sort of the devolution settlement as it sits within the UK. Does it undermine or strengthen the case for devolution? What does it mean for Scotland in particular with the uh, Scottish National Party looking as though they're going to do quite well in the elections next year? Just wonder what your views are as to where this might be bringing us to in a few years from now. So I think one of the things that Brexit has shone a light on is that for the last 20 years of devolution, an understanding it has essentially evolved into a clear distinction between what's devolved and what's reserved. And okay, there's always going to be tensions and spillovers, but that's certainly the way that I think the Scottish Parliament and most people in Scotland would see that the Scottish Parliament have got responsibilities in devolved areas, 
the UK government have got responsibilities and reserved areas. And apart from when the two rub up against one another now and again, that's essentially been the way that people would interpret it. I think where the internal market bill really comes in, I think, is a reasserting of the power of Westminster as to be the central force for dictating key policy, economic policies and more legislative authority across the entire UK. And then that, and if, if that has implications for devolution, then so be it. So, you know, there's been very little way of consultation, very little way of the devolved administrations being able to, to feed into this. I don't think the kind of, you know, discussion around respect agenda and collaboration between the governments has worked well. Now, you can say that both sides might be at fault for that. But I think that one of the things that does undermine is actually the, the devolution process as being something where we should have a grown-up conversation about how that develops and evolves. And instead, this is, I think, Chris, you mentioned, you know, Westminster taking a very big sledgehammer. And then if that has the consequences of devolution and devolved administration, so be it. George, do you share that view? Absolutely. Certainly the Welsh Senate and the Scottish Parliament are going to refuse legislative consent to the I am Bill, which means that the, uh, there's going to be yet another breach of the Sewell Convention, the, the convention that says that the UK Parliament won't legislate for the devolved areas in areas within devolved competence without their consent. And you know, it's yet another breach of the Sewell Convention, which has been breached several times in relation to Brexit and Brexit-related matters. And this is not how mature federal systems operate. To the specific question earlier about Northern Ireland and how that feeds into it, I mean, there are some technical points. There is a separate regime. The regime, the IM Bill regime, is somewhat different for Northern Ireland because of Northern Ireland's particular status under the withdrawal agreement. There's a lovely thing called CUNIGS, Qualifying Northern Ireland Goods, which the government has power to define what a CUNIG is, and it's only CUNIGS that can freely travel from Northern Ireland and, and have, the, as it were, the internal market bill rights in relation to the rest of the UK. Where that might matter is if, if one thinks about a situation where the UK had stricter regulation, bear with me, it may not sound very credible, but it might happen, had stricter regulation than the EU regulation in a particular goods sector, what then happens to the goods that are circulating in Northern Ireland? Because Northern Ireland is effectively part of the EU single market. We'll have to allow in goods that meet the lower EU standards. At the moment, how, how the legislation stands is that anything that circulates lawfully in Northern Ireland will be a CUNIG, and so can be taken over the RSC and has the internal market bill rights to be sold in England, Scotland or Wales. But if you had UK regulation that was higher than EU regulation, that would potentially frustrate that, uh, that regulation because you'd have the CUNICs would have to be sold, allowed to be sold in the UK, even though they didn't meet the UK standards. So that may have to change. I mean, at the moment, it's a bit of a theoretical issue. It's hard at the moment to think of an area where UK standards are going to be higher than EU ones, but it might happen in, in future. Emily, do you think the United Kingdom is living on borrowed time? I mean, I certainly think that this internal market bill is very antagonistic towards devolved nations. And I think that, I, I mean, I would just agree with the other podcast participants that this is part of a larger sort of suite of actions 
that seem to be oriented towards centralizing power. So this is, you know, it starts to make you question what this taking back control agenda of, of Brexit is, because this has encompassed devolved nations, it's encompassed you know, the courts and, and challenging the role of judicial review. It's encompassed the EU and challenging the obligations we, we made with the EU. So it's encompassed uh, other areas of, of the UK. So this is a, a pa- definitely a pattern that goes beyond the internal market bills, but obviously devolved nations and the future of the UK are seriously, I think, in question. Okay, well, there we have to wrap up our podcast today. Many thanks indeed to uh, all of our guests, to Dr. Emily Lidgate, to George Peretz QC, and to Professor Graham Roy. And once again, many thanks to all of you for listening in. Please join us again soon for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bytes podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.